Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Enemy Mine. In the year 1985, racism was cured. Yay! Goodbye, racism. (laughs) Wait, Wait, was was it this or was it Alien Nation a few years later that did it? I'm a man who remember Alien Alien Nation. Nation. Oh, I love that show. I love the movie and the show. Yeah, I, I was thinking movie, but yes, there was the show as well. Oh, Alien Nation didn't cure racism because of what all the aliens in that white. <laughs> well, they have they all the makeup. Kind of olive. They were yeah. actually kind of olive skin. They actually all had like a consistently not quite Caucasian to them. My, my problem is when I picture Alien Nations, I think what I actually picture are the cone heads. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's actually a really incredible the movie coneheads is actually a really incredible story of uh immigration though okay. i remember quite enjoying that one back in the day so like because it's, it's you know, on the short list i guess <laughs> it has a lot to say about about american immigrants seriously about people who immigrate to america for a better life and how they or how they come here thinking it's going to be temporary and then they wind up kind of stuck here and they build a life it's 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 a really great flick. I rewatched it about four or five years ago, and I was like, man, uh, I mean, my I have recent immigrants in my family, and I was like, yeah, this is it. Be like that sometimes. <laughs> well, I don't I don't think I've actually seen Alien Nation or Coneheads all the way through. I just oh, like, saw the videotapes on my uncle's shelf. So, but, but now you won't watch them till it's time to podcast them. So. That's, like, that's <laughs> the problem. I've with so many movies now. It's like yeah. But today, the one that you got to watch, which Luke, I don't think you'd seen before, was uh, Enemy I was Mine. aware of it, but I hadn't seen it. Seen it. Okay. Um, yes, this this is Matt here. I just recall. I, I I introduced Luke by calling him Luke. I have not yet introduced. introduced Enrique introduced Kowatu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got Henry Coteau coming back for the first time, not doing a horror movie. Thanks for coming with with oh, the cartoon glasses. Hey, yeah, <laughs> these things are a gift from the heavens. So, <laughs> mana for your eyes. Yeah, uh, it's, it's like they're drawn on, right? It's like a filter, but it's not a filter. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thrilled when you brought up Enemy Mine. I, I did. Did you bring it up like one time when we were talking between recordings or something? I, I feel like you, you like it came up and I immediately jumped on it. But yeah, I can't remember I've, exactly. I've actually farmed this one out for a few guests, a, p- a potential guests, and usually no one really responded. You were like, "Yes, enemy mine." I was like, <laughs> "Okay, great." <laughs> so. It's a great flick. Yeah, this um actually, I, I don't think I've seen it for thirty years, but in the five years from when it was made to that point, I probably saw it like twenty times. It was one of our our dubbed VHSs that I got from my aunt 
in Delaware. Um, I remember this must have been the first movie where I heard dirty words because my my dad had to explain to me why they were saying things like bullshit and asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's how you talk in a war. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's how we do war, kid. Yeah. So this is I think this is the first movie I saw with actual obscenities in it, interestingly enough. So is that what your dad was saying over the radio in Morocco? Well, yeah, he was he was a, a radios <laughs> man. I should mention by radios man, he was like doing like Morse code and sending messages. He was not doing yeah. good morning Vietnam. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't uh, think he was doing that. <laughs> I was hoping he was doing that. Well, but, I, right. I, I should throw out the story then where I um I made a song a few years ago um and, and my friend wrote the lyrics like radio man morocco and i think he did think it was like the good morning vietnam thing and, <laughs> and at first my dad was like pissed off about it and i had to explain no that one reference is a reference to the clash and then the guy obviously <laughs> thinks you were on the radio so it's it's not actually and he bought that explanation so that's good <laughs> so you it were safe it wasn't designed to piss him off. <laughs> what was it? Um, oh, oh, because I, yeah, the, the the lyrics start referring to combat rock. So he was like, "Are you trying to say I was a warmonger?" And I was like, "No, no, no, that's actually kind of a leftist thing to say because it's a Clash album." <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, Henry, you, you said you jumped on this movie when I said it. So, uh, what, what's your history with it? Enemy Mine was on cable. A lot when I was I couldn't have even been nine or ten years old and I used to, it was one of those movies that I caught it in pieces again and again and again and then some Sunday afternoon I caught the whole thing when I was maybe I don't know 12 13 years old something like that and then and I, I always remembered like I never remembered exactly what the movie was I just remembered the movie I remembered you know an alien and a soldier and they come together and you know all this stuff And then when I was in my 20s, I found another friend who happened to be, it seems like anybody who knows Enemy Mine freaks out when you bring up Enemy Mine. They're just like, wait, you've seen Enemy Mine? We can talk about Enemy Mine, you know? And uh, my girlfriend, actually, uh, she freaked out when I had already seen Enemy Mine because her dad, that was like his favorite movie uh, to show her when she was a kid. So when I rewatched it as a 20-year-old, I was like, oh, shit, this is as good as I remember it. I was not prepared for that. I thought it was going to be a lot sillier than I remembered. So that's that's really my my major history is it was just kind of a part of my childhood here and there. It might have been on Cinemax uh, a lot in the afternoons. I, I can't remember exactly, but I saw it over and over and over in pieces. Yeah, I guess the movie I saw in pieces would have been uh, the Beastmaster because it was always on a uh, TBS, right? Which, which yeah, the was Beastmaster a, station. A, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, which was UHF in Atlanta. You didn't even need cable for it, but um, WTBS. Um, yeah, I've never watched that whole movie. Actually, maybe one day I'll watch I, the Beastmaster. <laughs> I just the new Blu-ray came out uh, last this time last year, or maybe it was yeah this time last year. I think it was, and uh, I watched it for the first time from start to finish since I was a child. It's it's a ridiculous uh, flick. It's fun though. It's a lot of fun, <laughs> but it is silly. It is seriously silly. Uh, You're telling me a film called Beastmaster is silly? <laughs> Rip Rip Torn, you know Rip Torn, the actor yeah. uh, Rip Torn. He's in it, and he plays like the main bad guy, and he has this weird fake prosthetic nose that looks almost like a beak. And I always thought that was the weirdest thing ever until I read I read the book the director wrote, Don Coscarelli wrote about all of the movies he'd made because he made Phantasm and a few other movies. 
And he said that Rip Torn came to him like right before they were about to shoot. He was like, I've been thinking a lot about this character and I want to play him as a turkey vulture. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you don't say no to that request. <laughs> you don't. Well, that's what he said. He was like, I wanted to ask follow up questions, but I respected Rip Torn too much. So I just went with it. <laughs> um, Luke, your first impressions on Enemy Mind. This, the, yeah. So I remember the, I'd heard of it. I think it was in one of those weird books I used to buy as a kid. That's like Guide to Aliens. And it's 70% aliens from films. And then the rest are ones from like real life UFO encounters. <laughs> so it described the Draco. And then like the next page is talking about like the Dracos that um, David Icke thinks the queen is. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the reptilians. Yeah, yeah, that's the ones. <laughs> yeah, so these are the reptilians. Okay. Um, so I was aware of what the film was, but I never got around to watching it. And I watched it last night. And for the first half, I was thinking, this is good, but I don't understand why it's a sci fi. Like the film would be exactly the same if it was just a, like, American pilot and German pilot. Mm hmm. Um, and then the other pilot has a baby. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess that's pretty sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we get a, we get just like that tantalizing hit of you know space action and stuff. I I, I noticed mm. on YouTube. I, I think I was just trying to see if you could actually watch this on YouTube. And right. there were like several fan films where like people recreate those spaceship sets, which only appear in the movie for like two minutes. So I was like, wow, yeah. that they're, they're like. Like you said, Henry, it's that's some obsession. <laughs> well, and the movie's very striking. It's it's set designs and stuff are very are very striking. And it's also important to point out that this movie is what we would call deep sci-fi. Mm. You know, deep sci-fi. This is not Star Trek. This is not Star Wars. You know, this is deep sci-fi. Uh, often, I when people ask me what deep sci-fi is, I explain it as like when most of the characters, or at least half the characters, just plain aren't human. Like they're <laughs> they're very far off. Like if you ever read a deep sci-fi novel, it's like oh, so most of the characters are sacks of purple protoplasm. And you're like, yes. <laughs> My favorite sci-fi books are um, the Culture by Ian M. Banks. And the planet Earth only shows up in like one of the books, yeah. and just to be mocked, and then they move on. <laughs> that's so, yeah. almost that's almost Douglas Adams, right? Yeah, <laughs> I guess it shows up a little more in one, but <laughs> well, and, and well, that's, I mean, and that, there's not oh, even sorry. any characters from Earth in the culture novels <laughs> until like the last couple. <laughs> We're just an irrelevance in that series. Well, and, and deep sci-fi tends to not be you know, big hit makers and, uh, you know, with audiences when they're turned into movies and stuff like mm. that, deep sci-fi tends to not be blockbuster movies and watching enemy mine as an adult. Now, my first thought is like, who thought this would like sweep the box office? Who thought that like, they should drop, like, I forget how much it was millions, tens of millions, I believe of dollars. It was on accidentally it. twice what it was meant to be that. Oh yeah. I remember reading about that. making it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's the, that's my first thought is like, who thought this would, because uh, the problem, and, and this is why it's deep sci-fi, the quote unquote problem with the movie is, isn't it, it didn't have like enough big action scenes. It didn't have enough payoff mm. to kind of keep a mainstream audience interested. That doesn't mean the movie's not great. I think the movie is awesome, but we're all benefiting from a great movie at the, uh, at the expense of many, many investors who never, ever saw their money come back. Yeah, I, I just I, want to make it very clear. Good. 
<laughs> yeah. Fuck them. Level yeah, one. Investors deserve. Yeah, they deserve it. Fuck them for making a great movie. Fuck oh, them for taking fuck a them risk for and helping not creative always people making feed these themselves. movies. No, I mean, they fuck should always be taking them. risks, right? Oh, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't care if they lose money. Make more films like this. Yeah, the fact, of course, the fact that this movie exists is fantastic. I actually, I, I did get the numbers down. 17 million for the first attempt. All the footage scrapped, com- considered completely unusable. The second version, I ha- actually had a bigger budget, it was like 23 or 25 million with Wolfgang Pearson directing and filming in like the Azores or some Canary Islands, something like that, and um, West Germany. The movie itself made 12 million, so it didn't make yeah. the budget back of either of the budgets. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and there's that rule of thumb that a movie needs to make double its money to break even because of the amount of money in prints and advertisements. Yeah, um, well, because uh, I was reading about the same thing, and apparently, like, a big part of that is just they did not know how to advertise this film. No, yeah. not at all. They make it look like it's a big action movie because the poster is just the two of them staring each other down, and there's a space battle in the background. Yeah. I think 1985 is still j- a little bit before people really started like obsess over box office stats. Like it's like in 1985, you see it. It's a movie, right? You mm. like it. You don't really think about if it's success- uh, successful or not. That's for the that is for the bean counters to be thinking about. It wasn't really till the 90s that, you know, the box office game became such a thing. Is it Titanic? Well- Huh? Uh, it was before that it was Terminator 2 and Aliens uh, okay. in particular. James Cameron kind of invented by accident oh, yeah. All three the, of the major James blockbuster. <laughs> he kind of he kind of accidentally invented it. But one of the reasons that they became so obsessed with that, with those numbers and things like that was because the other boom in the industry was home video. And if you if you had commercials everywhere, number one movie in America for 15 weeks straight, you know, over one hundred twenty million dollars at the box office, all the video stores would order tons of copies of it on tape, too. So it became and this is still true to this day. A lot of times the theatrical release of a movie is used to be the advertising for home video, video on demand, etc. So I think I think that that's where the beast kind of where they kind of fed each other was that, you know, that was the marketing material was the bigger, the, the theatrical, the bigger, the, uh, the upside potential for the home video stores. I guess until, um, until home video came along, there was no benefit to you of announcing your numbers. No, I mean, not because like, once not, it's out of the theaters, it doesn't matter. Right. So yeah, they would only do it in the trades. Like yeah, they would, they would tell would their stockholders, it. but yeah. the, the public audience doesn't care. Yeah, they they would just be they would uh, they would know how well the movie was doing by if it played for a year straight in their local yeah. theater, you know, they'd be like, or if it took forever to get to television, they'd be like, oh, it must be doing really well because they're not dumping it on TV yet. So well, yeah. let me take a moment to uh, lay out the story of this one.
Willis E. Davich is a fighter pilot for the Bilateral Terran Alliance, late 21st century Space Force fighting the Drax, a reptilian race of aliens. While dogfighting over Fighting 4, Davich crash lands with his flight crew dead. In fact, the only sentient light on the planet is another crashed Drac. They try to kill each other for a bit, but begin to work together when faced with deadly asteroid storms. Years begin to pass, and the two learn each other's languages and lineages. The Drac turns out to be named Jeraba, though Jerry ends up as the nickname. After Davich begins to dream of spacecraft, he goes on a search and finds evidence of human scavenger vessels, bandits who use the Drax as slaves. Jerry did not join him as he is now pregnant. Drax reproduce asexually. The pair abandons their constructive shelter once a fake Sarlacc moves in and Jerry gives birth in a cave and then dies. The child survives, and Davich rages the young Drac named Zamus. The scavenger presence increases, however. Zamus is taken by the scavengers, while Davich is shot and left for dead. His old military forces find him, though, and he regains consciousness just before being jettisoned into space as a supposed corpse. He steals a fighter, returns to the planet, rescues Zamus, and goes raw deal on the scavengers. In the end, his military buddies even help out. He eventually presents Zamus on his homeworld of Draconia, and Davich's name is enshrined in their lineage. pronounced one or two of those words wrong okay you did a fine job my man <laughs> i think the only one you're pronouncing wrong was just the normal human name because i think it's davich oh yeah okay <laughs> I, i'm into the, the alien stuff right i'm in i'm into the deep sci-fi man yeah <laughs> yeah i want to actually i did one thought that occurred to me is um the new star trek i guess prodigy almost counts as deep sci-fi because it has no human characters <laughs> <laughs> just has a hologram human that's it <laughs> so uh, just as a little aside but um yeah we don't have to talk about many actors in this one but i guess we really do need to talk about them uh because of this movie i, I actually thought dennis quaid was like one of the biggest stars in the 80s which i don't know maybe he was interspace right stuff he's Dream a main escape. people know he did a lot of stuff yeah he, maybe he's just his name didn't sell films but he was around a lot he was in a, a ton of movies. Uh, he was in a lot of, of kind of Hollywood pot boilers. He was kind of in the, the those kinds of Hollywood movies that came and went and they made their money and that was it. Yeah. I I would be shocked if he wasn't a huge foreign market draw in the 90s because he was still starring in a bunch of stuff. Uh, it's kind of like, a, I don't know, like five or six years ago, people were like, why is Danny Trejo in so many movies? And I was like, because the Europeans love him. Like, they're going to pay for it. Well, so. Yeah. This film apparently was like weirdly successful in the Soviet Union. <laughs> well, was... attendance was mandatory, so <laughs> it, it was the first uh, Western sci-fi shown in the um, 
Soviet Union. So all they had was like Stalker and Solaris before this. Oh, wow. <laughs> you see, it was the beginning of the end. They got infiltrated with the Western thought process and then you know, just give it a few more years and boom, collapsed. Right. <laughs> it was all enemy <laughs> mine. That is my new theory. And I'm going to believe in it as a treat to myself. <laughs> that is kind of the theme of the film, though, right? Is about ending the war. So mm-hmm. well, and it's, it's, it's a movie. About, I'm sure it helped yeah, a little yeah. bit. And, and about how uh, we we build those constructs about like what an enemy is and mm. and uh, and all, all that stuff. At the end of the day, if you're a, a sentient living creature, no matter how different you may appear on the outside, you have very similar, although, you know, maybe the details are different, but the broad strokes are like you live and you don't want to die and you want to have a family or you want to, you know, be proud of your whatever. You know, it's, it's just humans did it slightly different than the other species did. You know, but the fact is, no matter what the governments of those two factions felt about the other side, these two uh, individuals, I want to say men, because it's beyond that. uh, (laughs) These two individuals actually have more in common than not. And that's the that's why I love that movie so much. Um, I feel like it's oddly not as heavy handed (laughs) as it could be. The message feels really obvious, but the way they execute it is so subtle in a lot of ways. It doesn't feel like they're just screaming at the top of their lungs what they're trying to teach you. It feels like they let you actually learn it through great performances, through great writing, and through great um, through great uh, makeup and and just through great production. And of One course, part uh, I really like for emphasizing that at the start, he like he's oh, I hate him. I'm going to kill him when they're having the battle. Then when he lands, you find out he's never even seen a drag. Yeah, yeah. Like he just hates him because he's been told to hate him. Yeah, or or because it's what helps him uh, be able to ra- wage war every day. Yeah, well, yeah, it's how he, he just, it, yeah, right, right. yeah, they they shoot at him all day, so he's gonna hate them. But in reality, it's not really that simple. Um, I yeah, mean, I wouldn't even want to imagine what you have to do to get up every day and and fire at people. Well, that's why a, a big part of military training is not how to do it; it's just breaking down the barrier that won't let people do that. It's teaching people to dehumanize the enemy or to see them as. You know, something you're allowed to shoot at. It's doing the opposite of the uh, films in the 1930s, you know, with World War One, where a, a lot of Americans just wouldn't shoot. Right. Because mm. they were like, I'm just doesn't feel right. I'm not going to do it. So but by World War Two, they'd see. Sorry. By World War Two, they'd see on the uh, gangster flicks and stuff. Right. So it's like, yeah. yeah, you know, be hip and cool. You got your gun. Right. Well, I think World War Two also, uh, thanks to Pearl Harbor, uh, had a lot more anger. You know, the the American, uh, the people who joined up the military had a lot more anger, uh, personal anger, because, you know, who gave a shit about the Archduke Ferdinand? Nobody, <laughs> nobody. But, you well, know, yeah, World War One was just Europe's piss way, like dick measuring competition. Yes. With World War Two, you could definitely make an argument. Eh, maybe we had to fight parts of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah prob- probably so. So it's like, but uh, yeah, Pearl Harbor definitely made it. You know, it's it's like any good action movie. This time it's personal. Yeah. Unless it's the movie Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Unless it's the film Pearl Harbor. Yes. Ugh. Yeah. Um, our other big star. I mean, Luke Gossett Jr. was action man in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, he was in like, I'm mean, come on, Iron Eagle and Iron Eagle, too. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and some other stuff. I for all, I could just remember Iron Eagle at the moment. But <laughs> and but and he acted the hell out of this movie right through the makeup. He was yeah. perfect. I mean, acting throughout much makeup is, is difficult, but I did notice they left quite a bit around his eyes and around his mouth for him to emote. Cause you'll see, a, 
you know, like Klingons in Star Trek usually at least leave their face area like on. Yeah. Except for yeah. the nose, you know, so they can act. Uh, then he they also did. He did a lot of stuff with his body as well. Right. Like a, like a good Spider-Man actor. He was really overdoing it and having it up so that when you look at him, he's expressing through everything he's got because he doesn't have so much of his face. And um, yeah, the, the rolled R's were um, Gossett's input. Apparently just liked rolling his R's. They liked hearing him do it. They're like, make that part of the language. <laughs> uh, really, uh, especially early in the film, he really comes across alien. Like yeah. he does some real weird movements and stuff, makes a lot of noises. And it is wild that we have basically the co-star of the film who's out 60% into the film. So I, I yeah. guess that's... Yeah. Well, and we never see his face as well. Like, right, right. So it's. I it's, mean, I guess that's quite common these days, but yeah, in 1985, because you really cannot recognize him. You know, even for me, I was like, well, wasn't that Lucas Jr. in this film? And I'm like, you can't quite work this out. And I had to like yeah. double check, you know? <laughs> so not not the most um, giving role, I guess, but uh, yeah, fantastic. Both of them are fantastic performances. So. Uh, he, he definitely put himself into it. And that's the sort of role that you can imagine an actor being like, you know, oh, it's a dumb space lizard. I'm just going to put in a hammy performance and call it a day. Uh, well, I don't think would, he, the uh, film would totally not work if he'd done that. So, oh, yeah. Well, I think when he saw, you know, when he read the script and it's like, oh, it's just the two of us. Mm. Then he knew, OK, so there's a lot of weight on this performance. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to punch for the sky on this one. And, and that's that's I mean, any that's an actor's dream being able to have even just half a movie be just you and another actor performing because that that's, you know, that's boiling it down. There, there's nothing else to play with. You've got costumes and makeup and you mm-hmm. and the other person. And that's it. You know, you guys are going to sit and talk and make the entire movie work. That's a daunting, but that's what actors live for. Yeah, yeah. I, I- I feel like I'm like biased on how big a role the kid had in the movie because I first saw this at six or seven. So, of course, I would have most identified with little Zamus watching okay. it this time. Like, is he? He's not actually in this that much, is he? <laughs> uh, no, he's not. And I'm kind of glad because I got big Alexander from Star Trek energy from him. Yeah, especially how fast he grows up. So that's yeah. kind of fun. <laughs> I think there's a scene at the end where the bad guy's holding him and he's like waving his arms around. And it's just like... <laughs> Well, adolescents, well, adolescents are annoying in, yeah. in real life. So, <laughs> if well, anything, it's frustrating. Didn't learn the lesson from this. Film. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my favorite film of all time. But oh, no. yeah, no. When I was a kid, I all I wanted in the world was to have my own Terminator, like Eddie Furlong. So I, I still, when people ask me what's my dream, I say I want to be friends with a robot. <laughs> and that's because I grew up watching Terminator Two and Short Circuit every day. Um, okay, so he d- d- just curious because, like I said, when I was seven, I was like, "Oh, that there's a kid in the movie," Whoa, and it's it's like hard sci-fi or whatever. So, well, I wouldn't have called it that when I was six or seven, but <laughs> I, I was surprised because, had not knowing the plot of the film in advance, I'd assumed the two leads would be in it throughout. So I was pretty surprised when it's like you say he dies pretty early on, and I actually um, I believed Quaid had died as well. When they had the oh. fake out death, I was like, whoa, this film is ending bleakly. Yeah. <laughs> Both of them are dead and the kids in slavery. <laughs> you want to make an anti-war movie, then that's how you end it. <laughs> um, th- one other weird thing that um, came from this movie mostly when I was in high school, especially, and I was 
getting bored listening to whatever was in class i'd like like doodle people right and then like like kind of like age them kind of like how um you know davish is in this movie you know showing up clean cut and eventually you know getting all hairy and then mm. I, I just sit there de-age and re-age them. It's a weird habit I do in high school. That all looked, it looked good. So if it was all makeup and wigs, then fair play. And it, but I got the impression they just filmed it over a long period. That's I assume it that, looked yeah. very real. Yeah, I've always assumed that, but I could be I wrong. I think they augmented it with makeup and and, and yeah. additional hair. But but yeah, I mean, I'm sure because I mean, uh, movies took back then, especially they shot for a long time, but they didn't shoot for that long. They didn't shoot like long no. enough to get a long beard. Right. Cleopatra. <laughs> but, but also like most films are not shot in the order that you watch them. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like they would have had to, to really pull this off. It, it, it would definitely shaven scenes at the yeah, start. And yeah. Yeah. Well, well Castaway famously shot in order because Tom Hanks just straight up grew out his hair out for that. So, um that that's interesting because the mechas did the first he did the beginning and the end of castaway and then took the exact same crew made what what lies beneath is it and then once tom uh hanks had gotten all hairy they made the rest of the movie oh okay that's cool <laughs> so he, he used that break to make another movie which is pretty cool <laughs> yeah, well definitely. they could have kept the stuff with um quaid at the start from the first shoot but told him to keep growing his hair between the two <laughs> yeah <laughs> That, yeah, yeah, except they didn't use any of that footage. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. I know. Again, the, the design elements here are relatively sparse, but they really do tend to stick in people's craw, which is cool. I think the alien planet looked amazing. When I was watching it, I didn't know what year this was made. And I was looking at those like vistas and skies and I was like, oh, wow, this looks a lot more recent than I thought. Um, but then the spaceships and the uniforms, they're weirdly... Buck Rogers. Yeah, they seem pre-Star Wars. <laughs> Like they just have such a, yeah, like you say, Buck Rogers, when it used to be, we could only imagine space as looking like astronauts. Yeah, but Buck Rogers with a, a few more dollars in the design. Yeah, production, oh, but, it looked yeah. good. It looked really good. I was just surprised at how like big bubble space helmets and white uniforms and stuff it was. And like the Drax ray gun was straight out of like a 1950s thing. I guess that's why this one gets the weird obsessions, especially about the spaceship stuff, despite it only being in the movie for a couple minutes, because it's maybe the last iteration of, uh, you know, like space race porn. (laughs) Yeah, I guess nowadays you'd only get that if someone was doing it as a deliberate, like homage or nostalgia piece. I mean, I don't think that's what they were going for here. Does Interstellar get there? Interstellar is like, because the, the reason it's weird in this one is because it seems very far in the future. But the aesthetic is a little closer to the present. Mm. Whereas Interstellar is only supposed to be a few years in the future, right? Like right. it's still NASA. 
Whereas this, the stuff they're doing is like pure Star Wars, but the characters doing it are US. But I guess it's meant to be a modern military metaphor, so they can't look too, you know, out there with the character costume designs and stuff. And I think they wanted to keep the, uh, I think they wanted to make sure people could kind of identify with it quickly, mm. you know, kind of look at it and feel familiar with it. Cause you want to, you want to feel like you're a uh, Quaid, you know, you want to feel like you're, you're in his shoes. Right. That's how you get the most out of the movie is by uh, identifying with him. Mm. Um, there was a, the sketch comedy show, human, human giant. And they had a sketch once where it's a, a guy, you know, cause the, the makeup, the, the Drac makeup is kind of like your standard, uh, very well done. But I mean, this is like the standard for your reptilian alien, right? Mm. So they had a sketch for one of the guys is on like a, a sci-fi TV show and he's tired of spending four hours in the chair every day. So he just gets himself surgically altered to look like the alien. And, and then, of course, the show is immediately canceled after he does that. So it has him like trying to get new roles, like where he's like showing up in like a romantic comedy but like in this like alien looking like an alien so <laughs> but uh yeah yeah just I, I wanted to use that to as a getting into the makeup thing <laughs> yeah the um the alien makeup is really good and it does it a really nice line between he's still human enough to act but he's got some weird like pulsating parts and like his mouth's a bit weird so he doesn't just look like like when you talk about a Klingon, it's oh, it's just a human dude with some forehead ridges. Yeah, Whereas, the gill yeah, things were definitely a nice touch. Yeah. yeah, kind of like Piccolo from Dragon Ball to me. Okay, I can see that. Um, one thing I did notice, I was watching it like in a like like I guess a Blu-ray level. You you, you know, on a Blu-ray you can kind of see the, the the where the application goes but i don't know as you know as i like knowing how films are made so it didn't mm. really bother me i was like oh that's interesting <laughs> yeah yeah blu-ray is not uh not as forgiving as uh even dvd uh, i was watching a, a b movie the other day that was shot on vhs in the in the mid 90s and i was shocked how good the makeup looked and i was like well i can barely see it which helps immensely <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> although 35 you know millimeter of course is going to show you details so i'm i, I oh yeah i don't remember why well, I, yeah, I, I in theater but. when this was in theaters it would have looked the same as it does on the blu-ray now so yeah, that can't yeah. Be the whole story the only the only difference is that when you have the blu-ray you have that theatrical quality experience at your leisure and you have the best seat in the house every single time yeah. so you can really you can really sit there and be like wow i can kind of see the edges of that makeup when you're in the actual theater you're you're you know maybe a little bit more engrossed and a little bit more distracted. Yeah, you let yourself get taken along for <laughs> yeah. the ride. Exactly. But but most people, I mean, because, you know, the old movies are the most popular segment of the Blu-ray market. Mm. And people find a charm in getting to see the edges a little bit and getting oh, yeah. to see the details more. So uh, only a few people are, you know, VHS purists. Um, <laughs> and I know a few and they're weird. <laughs> I also, It always amuses me that for guys like us, we always notice this stuff. But you forget that most normal people don't. Like, whenever you bring up, like, oh, yeah, the CGI in that film is terrible. And they're like, was it? Looked real to me. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, that's because you don't spend all day, every day looking at robots. Yeah. <laughs> I was also thinking, um, and not, uh, maybe this doesn't mean as much to Luke, but I think this was one of the first PG-13 movies. Because they did it in Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, rated PG. Dude gets his heart ripped out. And they're like, gee, that's a little too much. So they made up this one between you know pg and and r and 
This this must have been one of the first, if not the first, PG-13s. Uh, I can tell you what the first equivalent in the UK was, and that was Spider-Man in 2002, was the first 12A. <laughs> wow, that took a while. Okay. <laughs> but we'd always had 12. We have U, PG, 12, 15, 18. Oh, you so had 15 I, before. And then 12A was a little bit softer. Yeah. I just confirmed it because I thought I knew the answer, but the first PG-13 movie ever released was Red Dawn, 1984. Oh, well, okay. The kids have to know how to fight the Ruskies. Goddamn <laughs> right they do, and they need to learn how an occupation works. That, that's what I meant to do in my synopsis. I, I, I used Raw Deal as my reference, which also works, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, nah, we need the Schwarzenegger Nobody aspect. Nobody gives Quaid. Overall deal doesn't work quite as well. <laughs> um, I do want to kind of just take a moment to compare this to other sci-fi's. Uh, again, okay. I was talking about how the makeup, um, you know, is pretty iconic in this movie. Um, I, I keep bringing up the Orville and in, in podcasts recently, but the Mocklins and the Orville seem to be very drac. They're they're all men. If they're not men, they're you know forcibly changed. They they lay eggs in their case, but yeah. Uh, there's even a joke where they have the kid, and then like, what seems like three months later, he looks like he's five years old. Which so I'm assuming that McFarlane and the makers of the Orville are probably pretty obsessed with Enemy Mine. If they weren't, I would be I would be disturbed. <laughs> if they weren't. Yeah. But recently, in uh, the Monster Hunter community. Because there's a race in that called the Wyvarians who are basically look human with pointy ears, but they're meant to be like reptilian. And apparently it's been a huge debate online about whether or not they lay eggs recently. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they... People, people are even like zooming in on like official renders like, look, she has a belly button. She can't have come from an egg. <laughs> and as someone who's mostly quit the internet, this all came as a surprise to me when my buddy was trying to explain it to me. <laughs> Well, talking about uh, getting lost in the weeds, right? So I, I think the, the, the Blu-ray old movie thing is... Now, now you can feel like fine if you do that because you're not worrying yeah. about, about the monster eggs. The alien that I was reminded of, and I think I told mentioned this to you before you did this podcast, was... Um, I forgot the name of the film. What's the film I brought up, Matt? What? Last Starfighter. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, I think the Drax <laughs> in this look a lot like the Last Starfighter alien. Yeah, about the same time. I wonder if it's the same you know, makeup crew doing it. Possibly, but then that one was all the spaceship stuff was all CG. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely Infamously. not the same effects crew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't bother me when I was five years old. <laughs> I remember watching it on TV and me and my dad were laughing at the scene at the end where it cuts from the game to the, the film CG. But by the time we were watching it in like 96, they looked the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah definitely i mean that's that's like i i understand that babylon 5 is supposed to be really good but i, I just can't watch it <laughs> I, I can't get past the cg and babylon 5 so um i'll just scream out and and open up for discussion for the other big one is is fake sarlacc this one obviously being later in the game um I mean, you know, I like monsters in my movies. Yeah. It was very Sarlacc um, with that falling in the pit and the tentacle grabbing you. I, I found it scarier than the Sarlacc. Well, it comes out and says hi in a better yeah, way. Yeah, I guess it comes for you a bit more. The Sarlacc, you have to like literally be thrown into it. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, you know, when, when they did do the um, 
the the re whatevers of Star Wars. Oh, and it's got tried... the leak thing. Yeah. This this one is much better than that. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is a real right monster. <laughs> yeah. The first time when he falls into it, it just felt a bit like yeah, I wasn't that threatened by it. But when it attacked them in their home, I thought that was pretty cool. And then those those tree things are falling down, and I was like, wait, are they meant to be part of the creature? Are they like its teeth, or is it just that it's hitting them from underground? They didn't seem to have roots, so I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, that that monster was pretty cool. And the little turtle thing's cute enough, I guess. <laughs> Meteor proof. It's a little bit Monster Hunter up in there on that planet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Eric, what was your favorite monster? I mean, if we call I, them I, monsters. I was a big fan of the little of the little turtle creatures, uh, especially because, like you said, like it kept paying off later because they would have mm. all the shells and and be able to build protective spaces on it i thought that was just like a really clever production design choice uh to really help you feel immersed in in the idea that this world is all they have to mm. to get by with so i like i think those were my favorite were those little little turtle creatures the greatest monster of all in this film is man and that's and that fake sarlacc thing that one too. yeah but then like the because uh, <laughs> at the end we get like the slave drivers as like some some real villains to get our teeth into and like they are cartoonishly evil <laughs> oh yeah so, like, like at that point all subtlety goes out the window <laughs> yeah it was like 80s villain on screen <laughs> yeah. yeah that was about the 80s 80s I don't quite know how to say that. The most 80s video, uh, something like that. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, here's one thing I really did not like. Mm-hmm. The narration at the end. It's like you don't need to even say it at all. You're, I can work it out from what you're showing me. <laughs> I, yeah. I did like the point that his name got added. I thought that was a nice line. It, it, that was cool. But you could have done that with like a title card at the end, too, you know? Mm. But I, <laughs> I'm usually not a big fan of duration in films anyway, if it can be shown instead. And in this film, basically, you could cut all the narration and I would still know what's going on. That was my point. Like, they're, they're yeah. already showing you, so they really don't need to tell you. But I, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pick out the ending one specifically. I'd get rid of all of it. Mm. I feel like there were, because this is based on a book, there were probably a few nice lines in the book and the writers just really wanted to include them. And then it's like, I'm, well, how can we include them? I guess we've just got to have narration. Would yeah. be my well, guess I, on how that ended up happening. I wouldn't be surprised if the producers had some say in that too, because a lot of times when you hear narration in a movie, it was decided in post that somebody uh, on the team felt like everything wasn't clear enough. So they so they decided we got to go a little bit further with it. Not every time, but often. Was that an, a coughing agreeance? I was saying Blade Runner. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess I, I coughed too well, so you couldn't hear that I was saying a word. <laughs> Brazil does that too, doesn't it? There's some, yeah, it's the TV cut with that has ridiculous narration, I think, on Brazil. Yeah. The one film where I liked it was the Tom Cruise film, Oblivion. Because it gives you a bunch of narration at the start. And I remember watching it in theater, like, like bloody hell, guys, show don't tell. <laughs> and then it turns out it's because everything he's telling you is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, there's a reason they did that. Yeah. Thank you. 
Um, I don't know ideology. So, Luke, it's it's you. We're not expecting this much of a a uh, philosophical bend. I think. Oh no no! I, I was expecting as much of a philosophical bend. That's exactly what I was expecting. Okay. So um, what'd you get? I liked it. The so obviously watching it, I'm reminded of the the Star Trek episode, right? Darmok and Jalar. Oh yeah, that was my other sci-fi reference. I the forgot difference about in the moment there. I felt like that one did something which could only be done in a sci-fi. Because the point it was making was that even if they do have a universal translator and speak the same language, there's still the element of, like, you have to be at a point to understand the other person's culture. And I feel like this film could have done a bit more with making the alien more alien. Because at the end of the day, they both it turns out they both just communicate by speaking languages and they learn each other's language. So again, like I said, it could have just been, you know, American pilot, Japanese pilot or something. Um, so perhaps the reason this film didn't do very well is because it's like, here's a big budget sci-fi flick, but we're just going to do stuff that we could have done if it wasn't a big budget sci-fi flick. <laughs> but if they made the film with just two human actors and sold it on that, then people would have been like, oh, I'm going to go watch this emotional storytelling film. Because I think audiences thought they were going to get more of what they saw for the first two minutes. Not necessarily a criticism. It's just, yeah, an observation. Um, I just, obviously, I like the message. Uh, who doesn't? Um, watching it as someone who's been teaching English as a foreign language for three and a half years, I was just thinking, like, this guy is not good at communicating non-verbally. Well, no, he's he's been shooting. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's like he's a soldier. Not, like, <laughs> you're watching it. And it's like, oh, guy, come on. <laughs> and I also, he learned English real quick. Um, I would probably have liked to have seen the film explore that a bit more, because there were definitely, he went from not speaking any English to like full sentences and saying things that I'm like, why would he have? Why would Davish have taught him to say, you are the pupil and I am the master? Like, <laughs> how did those words come up in their survival English training? <laughs> but Repeat I guess, after me. You are the pupil and I am the master. One, like, two. <laughs> we forget that they're meant to have been there for like three years. Yeah. So yeah. after a while, they're just telling each other stories and all sorts. Right. So. Right. Um, definitely raising the kid in that situation. One, you you don't know much about the alien species. You have no resources. How did that work? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I hope they uh, they don't have a complicated puberty or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was kind of one of the things I like so much about it is that it, it kind of points out that all differences can be solved with proximity and time, mm -hmm. and that's completely true in human history. Uh, if a group of people don't understand each other, just put them near each other and give them time. Now, I mean, it may get messy first, but it will inevitably become a coexistence. I don't know if I've brought it up before, but um, I mean, I definitely have brought it up before, but probably not with you. I was listening to a podcast where they were interviewing a guy who helps people leave like neo-Nazi groups. He helps them like break that ideology. And usually what he does is just gets this guy to sit in a room for an hour with the person he thinks he hates. So you get the Nazi oh, yeah. to sit with, you know, with a Jewish person or with a black person. And yeah, proximity and time, they're like, oh, all this stuff I believe is bullshit. They're just people oh, yeah. like me. Have you seen the movie Accidental Courtesy? No, I've not even heard of it. 
it's a it's about daryl davis he's a uh a jazz piano player uh he's an older man now i think he's in his 60s and he has spent his life playing jazz music and con- deconverting clansmen and neo-nazis wow and the way he does it is he befriends them sincerely and makes no expectation that they do anything other than say what they believe to him and then listen to him say what he believes. Mm. And he has a, a little museum in his home of all the clan robes that people have turned over to him when they've left. And uh, it's a beautiful movie. It's called accidental courtesy. Well, yeah, that sounds um, really interesting. It's phenomenal. Um, but it's really weird because in, in, in America um, he's not well liked by like the black lives matter movement here mm. because they think that he's too kind to the, to the uh racists i guess but uh but he shows he shows results and he does it the way i mean he's you know he's a christian one of those like love your your enemy christians so and and hey if a i had to be any, actually listens to christianity i i don't know about that but, <laughs> but if, if but if that's what you get out of it then yeah. i'm happy for you so and it, it, it's a really great movie i bet it's on netflix in in japan because it left the netflix in america but everything that leaves netflix in america stays everywhere else a lot longer so I would I definitely just, couldn't recommend it enough. I hope yeah. just hope no one cl- calls like the SWAT team on his house because they're going to find all those robes. <laughs> <laughs> it's one That'd of those. Like, the difficult question sweet. is, I think on a person to person basis, that definitely is the move, right? It's you show them love. But when you're fighting systemic racism, which is what the Black Lives Matter people are thinking about, you know, how do you show love to the clan itself? Right. So. Well, Maybe I mean, there's he... barely, I mean, there's barely a clan left. Oh, so I'm not sure. Not, right. Yeah. It's not hard. I mean, <laughs> I, I, that's one of the reasons I like enemy mine. I grew up as a, as a young Hispanic kid in the Midwest of America. Mm. And, uh, it, it, it was not terrible, but there were, <laughs> there were issues. And, um, I, you know, was very touched by a movie about people who are different getting along. Because, you know, when I grew up, everybody was different than me. And, and it didn't help that I was just a total weirdo, too. That really hurts more. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, oh, cool. I got this name. Nobody seems to be able to pronounce. Now, this is in the 90s. Uh, now it's like, you know, there's plenty of Hispanics in, in, in Ohio. But back then there were not that many. Mm. Uh, in fact, the only other Hispanic I knew was my stepdad. So oh. <laughs> he was Mexican. So it was like, uh, you know, that was what I had, you know, as far as that. But uh, no, I, I, I feel like that's one of the reasons it clicked with me so much as a kid, because I always felt like an outsider mm. and uh, and I always like weird movies. So now all of a sudden, here's a weird movie about how people can really figure out their problems if they just shut up and listen for a minute. Even if they don't speak the same language, you can still listen and learn. And, and that's why I love it. Something that hit me watching it this time, which didn't before, is when he, he goes and, you know, uh, saves his, his adopted son and takes out the scavengers. You know, the, the, his crewmates actually do come to help, which, um, you know, like maybe they're starting to get the idea. But the thing that I was like, oh, wait a minute, I never made the connection. Oh, that's, that starts the chain of events where he can go to their planet and present the kid right so mm-hmm. um you know you know the meat of the movie is actually like unspoken and you know that scene cut more or less <laughs> well, yeah he, he's he's kind of uh well and we don't know what's happened between the human race and the drax 
while he's been on this planet all this time either. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they maybe they understand each other a little bit better, and it's only these profiteers who still want to uh, cash in on the conflict. Oh, they we don't do really seem know. To still have a lot of dead bodies to uh, give doll funerals to and jettison into space. So, well, they also um, yeah. <laughs> when they find out he speaks Drax, they're worried that he's a spy. Yeah. So I don't think the war is over, but. But maybe well, I mean, at even this if, point, they're yeah. a little more open to yeah. that. Kind or at of least more aware. They might at least understand the Drac better, yeah. even if they still are still fighting with them. Of course, this movie landed with pretty much of a thud when it came out, and and I sounds like we're all undeservedly so. Did it ever through home video make? I mean, not again. We don't want to be in count, but I, I am wondering if it eventually turned over to be a success or if it's. Oh, Wikipedia lists it as a cult hit. Who okay. knows what that means? <laughs> so, in order for it to 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 make a drop in the bucket on the money it cost. Uh, to be to be a success it, it would need to do better than rambo on vhs um <laughs> unfortunately i i don't think it ever was able to turn around it never i mean it played on television a lot which i'm sure helped but it also played on television a lot because i'm sure it was cheap because that was mm-hmm. the case with a lot especially in the earlier days of cable in the in, in the 90s and stuff uh you'd be like oh wow i can watch halloween four and five as many times as i want that's because they're cheap you know <laughs> well i can watch jaws the revenge is always on hbo that's because it's cheap so I, I i i mean but i do know that the people who are fans of this movie definitely are seriously fans of this movie so it definitely touched people in a way that i think is valuable it's why when you brought up the the title i lit up immediately and was like i would love to discuss enemy mine with anybody who was willing to sit down and watch it um so i i mean i think that you know the the benefit of it is that it will be remembered much more than many of the movies that came out that same year that were very successful because it did something special and I think that it was done from a completely, you know, uh, a completely un um, cynical place because mm. sometimes, you know, movies are done from somewhat of a cynical place. I don't think so, because I think that's why they were willing to scrap everything after they spent over $10 million and then start again, because somebody or some group of producers seriously, seriously believed in that book mm. uh, enough to rustle up that money and risk their own reputations to get the movie made so it's kind of beautiful in that way uh i do wish it had cost half as much so maybe it could have have been a big hit though Uh, another one i get it might be time proximity it might even be same some of the same crew but um you know um skipping demonic tim curry i felt like it did have a little bit of the same look as legend on the planet a lot of the time like especially the forest or and some of those like uh some of those uh, shots of moons and stuff just seem to have that kind of feel to it 
This is a much better movie than Legend, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe I we thought, just yeah. we don't get to see the eighties doing having enough budget to do that very often. It's like there's Star Wars, and that's about it. Yeah. It's because these other films that did it, I guess, for whatever reason, didn't catch fire. But yeah, this film looks beautiful. Yeah. It's incredible. And I think that it's it's because they they put an immense amount of effort into finding the right places to shoot and then dressing them well. Mm. You know, they, they and that's the kind of thing you can do when you got, you know, 20 million dollars to work with is you can you can fly first class to a lot of spots and decide where you want to set up your production. One um, interesting quote I saw was he was saying um, the first attempt at filming, they were filming in Iceland. And the director was saying, like, oh, it didn't look like an alien planet. It just looked like Iceland. Aren't, like, all sci-fi films filmed in Iceland now? Yeah, so everything looks like Iceland now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe. I, 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 I know Iceland's very cheap to get to. Iceland. Yeah. Iceland's very inexpensive to fly to, so that helps. Yeah. No, there, there are a lot. Um, again, Interstellar used Iceland. Uh, Star Trek Discovery used Iceland. I mean, that's just a couple off the top of my this head. This is another one of those things where me and Matt make a broad sweeping statement then we can only think of two examples oblivion you already <laughs> mentioned oblivion i think that was in there there's there's number okay. three there you okay. go there's three we get away with it yeah rule of three that means it's funny now <laughs> yeah. i think this film holds up really well um like it, it, it i wish this film had had a bigger audience but mostly i'm just i want studios to do this more because you know, because Spider-Man can make a billion dollars, you can afford to waste 40 million on trying something interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes and no. <laughs> in the film <laughs> business, in the film business, often when I see a movie that I enjoy, but mm. that seems out of place in the theaters, I always have the same question, which is as much as I enjoy it, I'm like, who is this for, though? Mm. Who did they think was going to come out in droves and pay to see this? No, but I mean, I, I wish they would just not think that. <laughs> Let's just make films for fun. Uh, but I guess I, I come mean, from a country with the BBC, so. Well, that's that's great. But you guys got <laughs> to get dentists, though. That's the next step. You got great television. Now you need dentists. We've got dentists. Uh, we just don't like going to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing that this film definitely does, like like it has kind of a limited scope. What we see is very cool, but it's a little bit of a limited scope. But it's a complete package. It's like, you don't need a sequel to this at all. There's no, like, right. that would be a stupid idea. <laughs> no, the yeah, film delivers on its points. It's like what you often bring up with um, Carpenter films, Matt, where it's like you just see what you need to see. And there's part of you that's thinking like, oh, I wish I could see the rest of this world this film's created. But actually, you don't need to. You've seen enough that you need to see for this story. Yeah, yeah, and this definitely serves that up. Because, yeah, of course you want to see more, more of the cool space stuff, but what you're getting is pretty top flight, so. Yeah, and, and a lot of times what you don't see can be as poignant as what you are shown in a movie. Mm. So, I mean, that's always important, too. You know, what you see is it gives you a hint of what you should be focusing on. And, you know, the movie does, the story is perfectly contained. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, I assume... You know, like the uh, the space force here is, you know, Verhoeven's Starship Troopers as, as opposed to the book, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, especially when we see the funeral scene. <laughs> yeah. 
that was that was some that, that weird could have been satire. straight out of Starship Troopers. Yeah. yeah, that was a weird bit of satire in the middle. So I mean, it didn't take me out or anything. It was just like not you weren't really expecting that scene at that moment. <laughs> but, Especially and, when, like I said, when I was watching it, I thought he was dead. I was like, this has gone so bleak, so fast. What <laughs> happened here? It's a and then like, okay, actually, he's fine. And then we get a heroic ending. It wasn't fine. He still was shot in the shoulder and his arm was falling apart. That's a flesh wound. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen Schwarzenegger get shot way more than that. (laughs) Usually not all at once, though. (laughs) Well, okay. Terminator Schwarzenegger, excuse me. Um, Yeah, that's that's a fair point. Yeah. (laughs) I was thinking I was thinking almost human Schwarzenegger. (laughs) He can only take maybe two bullets, right? Well, you see, because he'd been eating the turtles for so long, he'd actually developed a meteor-proof skeleton. So- there we go. <laughs> okay, <laughs> retcon in. <laughs> um, any final points anyone wants to throw out on on this one? Oh, except another dumb producer thing. Uh, I, I read someone saying at some point a producer was like, well, we're, we need to put a mind in the film. It's in the title. Why don't we have a mind? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh... Uh, <laughs> Fortunately, they didn't uh, listen to that. So, well, no, they did. Uh, well, there is a mine. The final yeah, set piece yeah. is in a mine. Yeah, it is a mine at the end. Oh, oh, that mine. Sorry, see, I you're thinking like a landmine. That was yeah. a landmine. Okay, <laughs> that's why I get this film confused with Last Starfighter because it's got a bunch of mines at the end. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, if so, I, if, why. Oh, so that producer is smarter than we thought. <laughs> well, let's not go that far. But uh, like I said, as a producer, let's not let's not give them too much praise. But I will say, you know, if, if you haven't seen this film and you've listened to all of this and had to spoil nearly everything, yeah. it's still worth watching because the execution is so good. It's so excellent. So I would say even if we've spoiled the entire damn film for you, you should sit down watch it maybe with somebody you love and uh and that way you know you'll really know if they love you by if they're willing to sit through some deep sci-fi with you so but like i said i went into this film knowing the premise knowing basically what happens and i was still engrossed like it's not the kind of it's not a m night Shyamalan twist-a-thon you know where it's going it's just seeing these characters take this journey is very enriching so yeah i think anyone and it sounds like most people haven't seen this film yeah. So I hope someone listens to this podcast and does go check it out. I, I guess we should just uh, amend that Wolfgang Peterson's later career was very successful. So it's not like this killed his ability to make films, fortunately. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was the hired gun after the first fail. So you can't well, really. It sounds like everyone at the studio thought, like, oh, the marketing department messed this one up. Yeah. <laughs> and they might have. I mean, one of the worst, uh, one of the biggest death knells for, for any major studio movie is when like the marketing team has changed by the time the film is done, mm. uh, you know, cause, and that happens a lot. So then the marketing team is sitting there with a movie that's already done <laughs> and they're like, okay, now we retrofit it with a plan. That's the worst way to do it. The absolute worst way you need to be. If, if you care about how much money a movie makes, you need to be thinking about the marketing while you're in pre-production so that you could try to actually make it tailor fit properly. Well, I mean, I brought up Spider-Man earlier, and that film was a masterclass in marketing. <laughs> Regardless of what you think of the film, they knew exactly what they were doing from day one there. You mean the most recent one? Yeah, yeah. With all oh, the yeah. Leaks. <laughs> Very big scare quotes. 
Although the original as well, right? So yeah, I mean, or I mean, well, meaning two thousand two. I mean, there's I don't you know, know. there's a, the Dragon's Challenge as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Henrik, you got any any movies in the cooker coming out soon? Um, uh, I just I just uh, wrapped a western, but it's not announced yet. Um, oh, cool. But I, I, I it, it's uh, it's in, it's getting its uh, score composed like right as we're speaking. Um, so it'll be coming out next year. Um, weekly spooky just hit 120 episodes. It's my horror movie or my horror story podcast. So, uh, highly recommend people check that out. And the TV series popcorn fodder that I, where I host, uh, lost cult movies, uh, just dropped on Tubi TV. So, uh, I think that's international, but it's definitely in the U S and in Canada, you can watch all eight episodes of the first season of popcorn fodder completely free. If you go to tubetv.com and punch in popcorn fodder. So I'm not even asking anybody to spend any money. You can just go there and, and watch it cost you nothing. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, I am asking you to spend money. Go over to patreon.com slash podcastio podcastios. <laughs> what will you find there? You'll find links to the other podcasts me and Matt make like Matt's one about the twilight zone. And his weird one about experimental films and cult films and weird documentaries. And my Pokemon one and my Monster Hunter one. Um, they can all be listened to for free. You don't actually have to buy anything. But if you want to find our podcast, they can all be found under the umbrella at patreon.com slash podcastiopodcasties. And when you're hearing this, I'll have gotten up our first four Garth Marenghi episodes, which will be on Patreon, at least for a little while before being let loose into the wild public. So Nice. <laughs> Or weird revisit through Garth Marenghi. Um, I, don't know. I talked a lot of smack about producers today, Henrik. I hope you didn't take any of it personally. So did he. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it makes you feel any better, I mean, uh, most producers don't even know what producers do, so it's easy to pick <laughs> on. <laughs> I just, yeah. Anytime films get boiled down to the money, it rankles me because I wish they wouldn't, but unfortunately, that's the world we live in. Well, it's not the world we live in anymore. You can make movies for very, very cheaply that's, that's now. I, yeah, no, I guess a film like changed. this would oh. be very doable now, right? You could make a Just film like characters. that. With, with that level of talent, you could make a film like that for $2 million now. Yeah. And it would be a success mm. in that range. In that budget range, you could make it a success between the U.S. and international, as long as you don't put anything in it that offends China. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know you're not. I'm we thinking know. like... I'm just wondering, like, hmm, male birth, is that a bit too close? Like... That might that might be. I know that in China, like, if you have two gay male characters, they'll they'll just dub it to make it sound like they're uh, just really good friends. Yeah. <laughs> no time travel. Not that this movie had that, but. Uh, well, yeah, but they're not, they, they don't they like time travel forward. or ghosts very much. Yeah. <laughs> we all travel forward in time. That's not as impressive. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if this released tomorrow and it was like, the big film on Netflix that everyone was talking about on Twitter, it would be, oh yeah, huge. As a Netflix, this could be like a fifteen million dollar Netflix original now and be successful. Yeah. I really do think that. I mean, and Netflix is kind of the good example. They'll spend a lot of money on stuff maybe they shouldn't necessarily because they're cross collateralized. They mm-hmm. their losses and their gains are all in one big pool, and they're in debt beyond all expectation. They're, they're anyway, in already. this weird modern version of a company where actually profit doesn't matter anymore. Well, it's because they haven't had, they've never made yeah. a profit. Yeah, that's it. They, they never have and probably never will. Just somehow uh, they keep getting bought. <laughs> well, they, they just keep, uh, just keep taking loans out there. Yeah. I forget what their debt level is in, but it's like 2 billion or something ridiculous. 
It's like, yeah, X, I think Xbox is now at the point where Microsoft will probably never profit from it. But it, you know, whitewashes all their military contracts. So, <laughs> well, uh, what what do we do? How do we let people out today? Do we do we drop them through the? Uh, do we give them a, a impersonal funeral and drop them out the hatch or what? Well, listener, please let us know your religion of choice, and I'll press play on the appropriate music as we eject you into space. <laughs> Dark Star.